Hey folks, this is the podcast of Principia Journal of Classical Education. I'm Brian Williams, General Editor of Principia Journal and host of the Principia Podcast. We are recording this morning a few miles from Valley Forge on the outskirts of historic and beautiful Philadelphia. The Principia Podcast is an informal version of the journal where I converse with authors of Principia articles and other scholars connected to contemporary classical education, and where I muse about key moments, educators, texts, and issues in the long tradition of classical liberal arts education. Our first issue of Principia is coming out in September 2022, so let me encourage you to find the journal online or at your friendly neighborhood classical conference. Today, we are honored to be speaking with author, former headmaster, professor, and ambassador of classical education, Dr. David Diener of Hillsdale College. David has an article in the upcoming issue called Augustine's De Magistro, Teaching, Learning, Signs, and God. And I'll ask him to discuss the article in a few moments. But first, welcome to the podcast, David. Yeah, thank you so much, Brian. Happy to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. A word about David before we begin. David, and David, you can correct me if any of these details are wrong. David is Assistant Professor of Education at Hillsdale College, former Headmaster of Hillsdale Academy. Uh, He has a dual PhD in Philosophy and Philosophy of Education from Indiana Indiana University, an MA in Philosophy, an MS in History and Philosophy of Education, and a BA in Philosophy from Wheaton. Uh, David is taught in K-12 schools, been a Headmaster of two classical schools, and now teaches at the university level while he also edits the series Giants in the History of Education for Classical Academic Press, serves on the board of directors for Society for Classical Learning, the Classic Learning Test, and he is a a national fellow of the Alcuin Fellowship. Anytime I feel like I am overwhelmed and busy, I always think, that's okay, so is David Diener. (laughs) So, uh, David, how do you manage all of these kind of things you have going on? Uh, Well, I hope I manage it well. Uh, I feel very blessed to be able to teach and lead and speak uh, on multiple fronts into the classical education movement uh, at both the the K-12 level and the university level. And uh, so I I feel grateful for all those opportunities and try to balance them as best as I can. And of course, all the the even more important responsibilities of being a husband and and a father of four kids as well. So yeah, well, we are all grateful uh, for the time you put into classical education. I know so many of us, uh, including myself and those listening, have benefited from uh, your work. Uh, one thing David and I were privileged to do a couple of years ago was uh, speak at the first conference on classical education in uh, Nairobi, Kenya, where we had 500 people from 11 different countries come. And that was a, a fantastic opportunity, a, a very fond memory. Uh, David, before we get to the article, just tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, were you always interested in the life of the mind? Were you always reading? Were you a good student as a kid? Yeah, yeah. I think I grew up uh, in a home with two teachers, so I should have seen it coming. My parents were both teachers, but I never really thought about going into education. Just never, uh, not that I was against it. It just never really resonated or wasn't my dream. And uh, so, yes, I was always reading. I read voraciously as a, as a child, uh, always enjoyed reading, always enjoyed learning, both both from books, but also practical things, uh, you know, tearing apart bicycles. I did a lot of electrical engineering and building circuit boards and uh, had a ham radio license, you know, from the time I was in elementary <laughs> school and these kinds of things. So always, always just loved learning and uh, and growing. And then uh, after college, my, my wife and I met at Wheaton College and then uh, worked uh, as a, for, for a few years as a high-end Finnish carpenter for a cabinet, building cabinets and high-end trim for an Amish company. And then we uh, moved to South America to, to serve as missionaries 
uh, in Bogota, Colombia. And it was there, I was teaching in a school uh, in Bogota when I, I, I realized like the light came on. I said, I love education. This is incredible. I love teaching. I love the students. I love uh, the, the kind of nexus of the life of the mind and my own intellectual development with uh, the, the personal relationships and being able to speak into students' lives and help them grow as people. I want to do this. Uh, but that means I have to go back to grad school. So um, it's been a it's been a journey. It, you know, I, I've gone through different uh, stages of it, as you mentioned. You know, for the past 15 years, I've been involved at the K-12 level and 11 of those in in administration. And so uh, moving, I've also been teaching throughout all of that at um, high school and college level. But it's uh, now I'm I'm back full time in the classroom uh, here at Hillsdale College. So it's been a it's been a wonderful journey with lots of different stages. Oh, that's great. It's always fascinating to me to hear how people find their way into education. Uh, you know, what were the, who was the important teacher? What was the important moment? What was the important book? Uh, and since you mentioned Hillsdale, uh, just tell us a, a little bit. Hillsdale has a new MA in classical education. I think that's starting uh, with uh, the wonderful Dan Copeland up there as well. Uh, tell us a little a, a word about that that new program. Sure. So Hillsdale College has had an undergraduate program in classical education for many years. Um, and uh, back in uh, about 2007, uh, the decision was made to, to stop offering state certification because of the requirements that the state was putting on, on those programs. So, so for the past roughly 15 years, the college has had a very wonderful uh, uh, classical education minor where our, our students uh, at the undergraduate level can do that. And then we've placed hundreds of students all over the country and the world uh, to teach in schools, many of them in classical schools, uh, based on what they've uh, learned here. And so in many ways, the, the master's degree program is a natural extension uh, of what we already have been doing and who we are as an institution. And it's been in, in the works for a number of years and, uh, you know, in designing and, and fundraising and all those things. And we're, we're blessed to be able to launch it this fall. And uh, it's, a, it's a general master's program in classical education. Uh, so there, there are uh, there are some core requirements you have to take, and then a number of elective courses as well. And if you if you want to go, for example, into uh, leadership, administration, or into a specific discipline at the secondary level, or into primary education, there there are uh, a variety of course course packages that you can put together in order to do that. So we really hope to be uh, a leading voice in uh, in in training teachers and uh, administrators for classical. Christian and 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 public charter classical schools all over all over the country and the world. That's great. So uh, University of Dallas has a has a program that's that can be fully online. I I run a program at the Templeton Honors College that is a hybrid program, part online and part residential. And am I right? Hillsdale's program is is entirely residential. This is a two year full time program. This program is yes, we are we are launching the MA program as a two year residential program. Um, one of the the wonderful aspects of the program is that it is it's funded such that the the tuition is covered. So many master's programs are not like that. But but yes, for now we're, we're launching the program as a as a two year residential program. Uh, the hope is in the future to also offer a hybrid option. And as you know, there are strengths and weaknesses, right? Benefits and drawbacks of that. But we do want to make this accessible. Uh, and, and recognize that not everyone can move here to Hillsdale for, for two full years, though it's a wonderful place to live. And so in the future, yes, the, the hope is to offer a hybrid version as well. Okay, that's great. Well, a, a two-year funded 
program in classical education. I, I, that's pretty fantastic. So kudos to you, to Dan, to everybody at Hillsdale that, that has pulled that off. I'd love to ask more questions about significant books for you, but maybe we can come back to that because I'd love to talk a little bit about your article. Um, so Augustine, for a lot of us in theology and ethics and classical education is kind of a pivotal figure. Uh, I was telling David right before we started that I just am just back from a week-long trip to Tunisia where I spent three days in Carthage visiting Roman sites and sites where Augustine uh, would have lived and breathed. I went to the baths where he and Olypius would have hung out, the theater, uh, the spot where he and Monica took their leave of each other, uh, the basilica where the Council of Carthage was. And I kept looking for groves of pear trees, kind of wondering, <laughs> oh, was it there on that hillside, that hillside? So you could take one, right? You wanted a pear? Yeah. I wanted I wanted a pair. I wanted to chuck it to some pigs and just kind of relive that moment, the confessions. Um, but David, I know some of your previous work has been on Plato and, and Kierkegaard. I see the whole shelf of a Hong and Hong translation of Kierkegaard behind you there. Uh, when did you get interested in Augustine? What, what was what was one of the first books you read of him? Or when did you, you know, you kind of think, oh, I, I need to spend some time with this man uh, from North Africa? Yeah, I can't say this for sure, but I assume that the first thing I, I read with, from Augustine was the Confessions um, many years ago, and he he's an important figure in in so many ways, as you said, for theology, uh, ethics, um, in education also, and he, he's an important part of the tradition. I think what, what's interesting, a, it's difficult, sort of like Kierkegaard, it's difficult to or, or Aquinas or somebody like that. To to in any uh, in any sense exhaustively read or understand him because right. he just thought and wrote so extensively on so many different topics um, that that grasping his thought you sort of feel like you're you know uh, spooning out water from the ocean as it were um, but but he's an important figure in in a number of ways and so I wanted to write this article specifically because this dialogue on the teacher um, is is not a dialogue that I think in many circles is widely read. It's it's one of the more obscure dialogues, but it is explicitly about what it means to teach and learn um, and, and how we get knowledge and the role of the teacher and the learner and God in that process. So I, I thought this is, this is something that for the classical school world, the world of classical education, uh, it's an important piece that uh, hopefully it would be helpful to, to exposit a little bit and, and offer some thoughts on for, for the readership of Principia. Yeah, it's great. Uh, I read it ages ago, uh, and it's always as one of my favorite lines I often quote uh, near the end. He says, for who is so stupidly curious as to send his son to school that he may learn what the teacher thinks? And I, just thought, I mean, I've used that so many times in training teachers or training teaching assistants. And, you know, I, I think it's great. There's so many lines and, and passages in here that I that I appreciate. It's interesting in the opening of your um, article. You point out it is the only one of his extant dialogues that Augustine mentions by name in the Confessions. It is the only dialogue in which his son, Adeodatus, is the primary interlocutor. And it is the only dialogue that Augustine does not correct in any way in his retractions. I mean, those three things alone really kind of set this set this apart uh, as a fascinating dialogue, let alone just the emphasis on teaching and learning and signs uh, in there. So can you give us... Um, just give us an overview for people who haven't read the article yet. Uh, give us an overview of, of what you do in the article. Sure, sure. So, so the first part of the article, uh, I sort of just introduce the dialogue and summarize or exposit it a little bit, just sort of lay out the flow of the argument. Like I said, uh, this is not a dialogue 
that uh, that is as widely read as some of Augustine's other works. So people, you know, are, are tend to be more familiar with City of God or Confessions or, or these things. So so I, I just sort of explain what this dialogue is about. Um, and it, there are a lot of moving pieces. And so, uh, the, you know, you can get a number of pages into the dialogue. And then uh, Augustine stops. And this dialogue was based on a real conversation that he, that he had with his son also. So there's a historical aspect of this. Uh, so, so you get, you know, you get pretty far in and then Augustine says, okay, why don't you recap what we've done so far? You know, we, it may seem like we've just been playing. This is all sort of a preliminary warm-up exercise. Now we got to, you know, turn the conversation to the real stuff. And it's easy to, you know, like, what, what do you mean? I've just spent you know all this time plowing through and trying to understand. And now you're saying this was just, you know, sort of the, the preparatory warm-up. I mean, what's going on here? So, so the first part of the article, I, I, I sort of just lay out the argument and what the dialogue is about. And then I turn to a couple of themes that come in this, in this dialogue that are really, really important for Augustine's thought and that get developed later in his corpus more fully, but that this dialogue uh, makes significant contributions to. So, uh, for example, uh, the, the um, semiotics, Augustine's uh, theory of signs and the way that uh, signs and words uh, and names all interact and point us toward reality. So uh, Augustine is one of the seminal thinkers in that field in terms of semiotics and communication theory. And this dialogue, uh, there are some important developments in his thought that occur within this dialogue. And then also hit the doctrine of the inner teacher for Augustine, which again, it's fully developed uh, or more fully developed later is, is important in um, De Doctrina uh, on Christian teaching and, and other places, but he's making really important contributions to his thought here in this dialogue. And also in this dialogue, you get in this context of, of questioning about teaching and learning and how we get knowledge, you really get the, the justification epistemologically for why uh, the, the doctrine of the inner teacher is so important. And so that that is important. And then finally, in the last part of the article, uh, I turn to some educational implications. Uh, having to do with the nature of teaching, the nature of learning, knowledge. And what I try to do is draw some links between Augustine and Plato specifically and show how uh, this dialogue is, uh, I argue, in many ways, an example of the kind of plundering of the Egyptians for which Augustine advocates. That is to say, he, he almost copies certain Platonic questions and their answers, but Christianizes them. So uh, the doctrine of, so I do some comparison between uh, specifically the Mino, uh, that dialogue, that Platonic dialogue, and what Augustine is doing here to, to draw some ties as, as I sort of exposit or explain some of the educational implications. Yeah, that was that was fascinating to me and to my uh, associate editor as well in, in, in your article. And I'd love to have you unpack that a little bit more. So uh, Augustine has this idea of the inner teacher, and he, he says some he says some things in there that, you know, kind of make you pause where he says something like, well, you know, he's thinking about how we learn. Right. And he says, by means of words, a man is simply put on the alert that he may learn. You know, and I, I want to ask about, you know, how we help our students grasp that and really appreciate the implications of that. But he has this sense of the inner teacher being God, being Christ, and that somehow that inner teacher is the is it the means by which we learn? anything um so so but then you make the connection that somehow what augustine is doing is his inner teacher maybe is it 
right to say it replaces Plato's idea of anamnesis or remembering what we've learned in you know past lives or when we were encountering the forms. Is that right? Is that where you see Augustine Christianizing uh, Plato or providing a Christian answer to Plato's questions? Uh, in short, yes. So maybe let me unpack a little bit. Uh, first of all, a metaphor. Uh, Plato in the Republic uh, talks about sight and how you have, uh, in order for sight to happen, you have the eye, you have the object that is being seen, but then you also have to have light. And the light uh, is what in of the sun, right, is what enables the eyes to perceive the object and, and for the faculty of sight to work. And, and he, he, he uses that metaphor of, of physical sight to talk about the, the form of the good, right? That ultimately the form of the good is like the sun that enables us to see. So Augustine almost, almost verbatim copies that and, and also talks about how um, the, that our intellection or our, our, our understanding um, is similar to physical sight. You could say the sight of the mind. So you have the faculty uh, of, of sight uh, or of understanding. You have the object that is uh, seen or, or, or known. And then you have to have this third thing um, in the case of physical sight, light. And in the case of, of, um, of understanding, the inner teacher that enables it to happen. So um, I guess one other parallel just to sort of start the unpacking here is in the, in the Mino, uh, what the, the unpacking of the doctrine of recollection and then Socratic dialogue and what happens with the, the, the so-called slave boy episode uh, to show that teaching, what we call teaching is really just asking questions and helping the student to remember. All of that starts with Mino's paradox. Where, where Mino uh, you know, offers this skeptical paradox that basically makes knowledge impossible and says, look, how can you, how can you learn something? If, if you don't know what you're looking for, how can you, uh, if you don't know what it is, how can you go look for it? And if you don't know what you don't know, how can I go look for what I don't know exists? Right, and if you find it, how will you know that you found it if you- if, Right, if you don't know it ahead of time, right. that's right, that's and so, right. And, so, and this is in response to trying to figure out whether virtue can be taught, right, in the meeting. It's usually like, that's that's me in the gro in most grocery stores, by the way, just as an aside. <laughs> I, I don't know what I'm looking for, and I don't know where it is. And when I find it, is this the vegetable I was supposed to buy? I'm not sure. Exactly, yeah, great example, yeah, yeah, yeah. So Socrates responds by unpacking this this theory of, of recollection, right? Where uh, you know the the basically the soul is transmigrates between bodies, and over over the years or centuries, the soul knows everything, such that the student, what we would call the student, already has the knowledge uh, within himself, and the role of the teacher is simply to help bring it to birth or to help the student recollect the knowledge. Right. So that's Socrates. Yeah, that's Socrates's answer to the question, how does the slave boy come to understand or how does the slave boy arrive at the right answer with this this mathematical problem that he draws in the sand? Right. So, so I mean, so it's it's Socrates. How do I explain this? OK, here's an explanation. The, the, the soul's transmigration and anamnesis remembering. Correct. Yes. This theory of recollection, which then right. gives rise to the Socratic dialogue. I mean, the, the, that's the justification or it's on. It's on that sort of metaphysical paradigm that Socratic discussion makes sense because what you're doing as a teacher is you're asking these questions to help the student remember or recollect what, what already is known, right? Okay, well, that's fascinating because, you know, so many in classical education, so many of us, it's a core pedagogy of classical education is some, ver some version of Socratic dialogue, whatever that looks like. So, I mean, the question, follow-up question would be, does Socratic dialogue depend on this kind of eternal soul and uh, recollection? 
or can Socratic dialogue be practiced apart from a belief in uh, this kind of anamnesis and, and transmigration of the souls? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and I think it can. I think Socratic dialogue is, is an important pedagogical tool. I, I do find it humorous that so many times in classical education circles, as you said, it's sort of bandied about as paradigmatic of classical pedagogy. And, and oftentimes people don't recognize this is actually based upon a, a metaphysical understanding of the way the soul works that most of us reject. <laughs> so, and yeah. sometimes we also forget that Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle also gave lectures. We certainly know Plato right. and Aristotle <laughs> lectured because their students comment on it. And a couple, a couple uh, of Socrates students also just in reference will refer to when Socrates gave a lecture on. So Socratic, so what we call Socratic dialogue wasn't the only way uh, that the, the ancients taught. Correct. Correct. So what Augustine does in this dialogue on the teacher is he essentially comes to the same paradox, but through a different avenue. So he develops this theory of semiotics or signs through this long, you know, winding argument, comes to the conclusion that um, nothing can be taught by signs. So and it's almost exact. It's almost verbatim the kind of language that's used in Mino's paradox. Um, so when I use when I use a word like chair, for example, or head, right? You know what I'm, the, the thing to which I'm referring, because you know that the word in English, head, or the word cabeza in Spanish or whatever, you know, the sign language sign, it is a sign that points to that thing, that reality, right? Okay. And so what Augustine says is, he says at the end of the day, which is why the, the quote you mentioned earlier, the humorous one about why would anybody be so stupid as to send their students to the teachers? His point is you can't teach anything through signs because, and this is again, almost like Mino's paradox. If, if the student already knows what the sign signifies, then the student isn't learning anything. And if the student doesn't know what the sign signifies, then the teacher's use of the sign isn't meaningful. So the most that the signs can do is point students toward realities, but it can't actually give them knowledge of them. Okay. We could unpack that more, but that's basically it. And so what that leads to then is the question of, okay, well then how does, what is teaching? What is learning? How is knowledge possible then if no teacher can communicate through signs? Right. If signs aren't the efficient cause, if signs themselves aren't the efficient cause of the student learning, right? Is that, right. The, is that, yes. we say that like, what, what, what is then is the question. Yeah. And so again, using this very platonic uh, imagery of, of sight, what, what Augustine says is instead of the soul's eternal, you know, omniscience, the fact that the soul knows everything because of this transmigration of souls, what he says is the inner light that enables this seeing or this knowing is the inner teacher, which, which is Christ. So again, he's, he's Christianizing uh, what I argue is, is a very platonic understanding of learning. And he's, and he's, and he's making um, Christ's presence an integral, essential part of the learning process. So uh, an obvious question uh, here is, is, does that imply that Christ is somehow actively engaged and present to every single person who learns anything? Uh, or is this a kind of internal faculty of the soul that Christ has put there? Or is this a kind of Christ as, uh, you know, cosmic logos who upholds the order of reason and logic? Or, or, or how do we understand? Because when you read it, the inner teacher, it sounds like he's saying, 
Christ is present in each one of us, helping each one of us learn everything at every moment in time. How, how do you read that? So I'll uh, avoid the question and then give a general answer to the question. No, the, the, the answer is that as with most uh, or many very important philosophical or theological interpretations, it's a little bit vague. So there is there is a significant amount of scholarship, you know, in trying to interpret that very question. How exactly does Augustine think this works? And over the centuries, different there have been different strands of thoughts uh, about um, how we understand the inner teacher to work. So, um, but in a in a broad sense, I would say what it what it means is that yes, in some way, um, there is divine presence in every act of learning. And and I think that maybe the easiest sort of entry explanation would be that that the same is true of of sight, right? Or that that through general revelation or or God's beneficent, but common grace, if you want to you know use that terminology, that all of us have access to um, um, c- certain aspects of of God's nature. He's present in certain ways um, that we all experience. So so yes, even even the the pagan or the or the unbeliever, anybody insofar as there is an act of learning that takes place, it is made possible because of, of Christ's presence, um, which enables the soul to learn. So, so again, I mean, exactly, say, you could put it this way, um, exactly how it works in terms of the mechanism is, or how Augustine thinks it works is, is an open interpretive question. But at the very least, um, humans alone there is a nece- there's necessarily a divine presence um that's involved in the act of learning human beings on our own cannot do it right that's helpful uh, and i think it's so fascinating that augustine chooses to put this uh to, to grapple with this question in a dialogue you know because he doesn't always write dialogues you know but but this one is in the form of a dialogue which i think is also suggestive about the way we are coming to and the way we ought to come to grapple uh, with this this big idea through discourse with it with another person. So can I add another element? Just yeah. that that th- this question of of semiotics or signs, he, he he develops later in other in other works, in an explicitly theological sense. So for example, what's going on with the sacraments, right? And he interprets those in in these kind of semiotic terms. And of course, there you have a different kind of divine presence than what we're talking about in this in this general way. Yeah, right. So uh, where else does he develop his uh, theory of semiotics? I think of De, De Doctrina Christiana, often translated on teaching Christianity or on Christian doctrine. Or Christian teaching, uh, yeah. On Christian teaching, right. It's translated different ways, especially there in books two, three, and four. Uh, this was a book that Augustine wrote for other bishops and priests on how to teach scripture um and drawing on his classical education and rhetoric uh for sure uh what other what else comes to mind i don't know yeah de doctrina is the is the biggest one uh, i think you're right there where, where he where he develops it he, he had talked about signs uh, a little bit in some earlier works um in uh de dialectica uh, or on dialectic um he had talked about them a little bit um but 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 uh but on Christian teaching or, or data is, is the main one where he discusses it later. Well, and it's really interesting. I mean, obviously the theory of semiotics has been huge in the 20th and 21st century. And Augustine, uh, so many of the uh, semiotic philosophers, semioticians maybe, uh, do wrestle with um, Augustine uh, throughout the 20th and 21st century. Yeah, well, and so that's absolutely correct in terms of philosophy of language and things like that. 
Uh, but even throughout the, the medieval uh, period, theories of language and communication were heavily inde- indebted to Augustine and in large part to uh, his work in this dialogue. Yeah, no, that's really fascinating. Uh, so let me let me turn. Uh, first, let me encourage anybody listening that you should go read David's article uh, for the, the full treatment of this. But let me ask David a final question about um, uh, kind of the practical implications of this. H- how has this dialogue or Augustine's understanding of semiotics and the inner teacher here, how does that inform your own pedagogy? Like, do you teach differently because of this dialogue or does it inform the way you teach um, yeah, so I, I begin every every course by telling students I can't teach them anything. Okay. So if they're stupid <laughs> enough to come, then that, no. I'm um, yeah, I, I don't think that it has changed m- the practice of my teaching significantly, but I would say that it has deepened um, and broadened my understanding, uh, both in terms of the history of education and in terms of the philosophical groundings for my own teaching. It has deepened my understanding or and, and thought about what I'm doing when I'm teaching. And, you know, Brian, I think this is one of the things that really excites me, if, if I can just sort of broaden out, about the, the Principia Journal, why I'm so excited to uh, t- to be serving on the editorial board for that and, and helping to, to move it forward. And also what I see happening in classical education circles more broadly is that over the past, even just uh, 10 years, let's say, over the past decade, um, there has been an increasing, and, and I'm continuing to see this, deepening of the intellectual, um, academic understanding of our tradition. Uh, you know, this, the, the classical education, what we call classical education today, uh, is this centuries, millennia old tradition. And and over past decades, as more classical schools have grown and started and flourished and and uh, classical homeschooling, and, and now uh, in the higher ed world, um, more more programs, uh, are being developed and more colleges and universities are becoming aware and interested and engaged with uh, classical education. One of the things that I love about that and, and part of what we've tried to do through the Alcuin Fellowship as well is just continue to deepen our historical philosophical understanding of the, the heritage that we have in this tradition. And so to me, exploring a dialogue like this and what's going on with Principia is super exciting uh, because you have people increasingly who have academic training who have studied these things and are bringing them to bear on uh, these very practical questions that are happening all over our country and the world in classrooms every day. And that's exciting to me. Yeah, that is really exciting. And we're glad to have you on the editorial team of Principia as well. And this is where David and I share a passion uh, to discover the tradition, to bring the tradition to light. I mean, my own doctoral research was on Hugh of St. Victor and Philip Melanchthon and John Henry Newman and trying to establish that there is this long tradition that we are just trying to perpetuate. Sometimes I tell people, we're not, we should stop using the language of renewal. We're not renewing classical education. We're just the latest moment in a long tradition of education that we commonly call classical liberal arts education. But David, uh, question, I'd love to hear you reflect uh, before we close. Why do you think so many academics, PhD students, and now universities and colleges are becoming interested in classical education? As, as seems to have happened, as you say, in the last decade, maybe. And, you know, I'm, I may be one of those people as well who was in classical ed and then got a PhD and have come back in a way to classical ed. But do you see this as a trend or what do you think is, is driving this? Yeah, absolutely. It's a trend. I think the number of people like you and I who have both uh, worked at the K-12 level 
in, in one either teaching or administrating or whatever, but have worked in classical K-12 schools and also have uh, PhDs, uh, our university professors, administrators. I mean, so the 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 juxtaposition or the the mixing of those two different worlds is happening increasingly. Uh, whereas even just a couple decades ago, there were not very many, say, full time college professors that were very involved in K twelve classical education or or vice versa. Right? Um, I think so. Uh, I'm sure there's a super complicated, lots of angles. <laughs> to take here. But let me offer. Let me just what comes to mind is two different thoughts. Uh, one having to do with the students and the other having to do with uh, faculty. So uh, part of my own journey, and, and I think there are many people who share this, is that at one point, you know, I got a PhD, did these master's degrees and dual PhD, assumed I'd be a college professor, and then got involved in classical K-12 education. And at, at multiple points throughout my career, uh, turned down tenure track university teaching jobs in order to to work at the K-12 level. That's and, career suicide, Dr. Diener, isn't it? Well, but there are, but but the number of people who have done that um, is increasing. And, and so th- I think the two aspects here, one would be, and there's practical things, right? The job market's hard if you're a newly into PhD and you can go, you know, teach, that's okay. Um, but also just the caliber of students. So, so for example, um, in, in my first uh, classical school job at Covenant Classical School in Fort Worth, I taught a, a, a history of philosophy class to juniors that was really a 300 level philosophy class, college class, right? And so when you have 15 or 16 year olds or 17 year olds who are coming to you, who've been studying Latin for years, who have read all this great literature, who already have read Plato and Aristotle and Augustine and Aquinas, who have all these philosophical and theological and liter- you know, literary reference points, categories, just what you can do with them is is very um, rewarding. The, the caliber of writing you get out of them, the caliber of class discussions, and so I think a lot of college professors have have recognized like just I can actually teach there, and I find the students very fulfilling. And then the the other side of that is faculty culture. So I think what's happened um, is that in many ways the classical schools uh, have provided uh, a kind of faculty culture where you have highly educated, deeply intellectual, curious, broad-minded people who are coming together, having really great conversations. And um, again, I don't want to stereotype, but a lot of times, unfortunately, um, if you're in just a typical you know, college professor job, you're sort of siloed off with, with people who either just in your department or people even within your department who don't really share your basic assumptions. And so it's kind of a lonely intellectual life or can be. And so I think what a lot of people have found is these classical schools are providing a really rich, robust uh, faculty culture and, and a context for growing as an intellectual where people are doing reading groups and writing papers and talking together, which in many ways is what I would say college faculty should be. I mean, you mentioned Newman. I mean, this is kind of Newman's vision of, you know, people from different disciplines coming together and then students sort of being a part of this ferment of ideas. And unfortunately, it's just not what's happening in a lot of colleges today. So I think that's another reason why this is continuing to happen. And finally, I guess a, a practical point would be Colleges are recognizing the value. This is, is in many ways has been over the past decades, a grassroots um, movement that is trickling up as opposed to an ideological one that's trickling down. So again, even within the past decade, colleges have recognized you know, admissions departments. Hey, we want these kids that have been classically homeschooled or classical schools. Um, and, and then the need for teacher training programs or and now you know at the undergraduate and now at the graduate level to, to create you know people who are equipped to teach in and lead 
these schools and, and, and is needed. So therefore colleges are responding. Yeah, that's great. Uh, I won't add to that. I'll just say amen to that. And I think that's the experience of so many people um, who have gotten involved in classical education out of higher education. And Principia Journal, in a way, exists to give people like that a platform to publish their works. And hopefully it's a catalyst for people continuing to do research in the long tradition of classical uh, education and the contemporary practice of it. And so I, I think that's one role that uh, the journal serves for those of us who are involved in this, whether at the K to 12 level or uh, at the higher ed level. That's right. And Brian, if I can just add one thing, build on what you just said, amen to that. One of the things that most excites me about this journal is that it is creating, it is doing uh, in the context of a peer-reviewed academic journal, the kind of thing I just described within the schools around the lunch table, where what we're doing is we're bringing together people from philosophy, theology, education, literature, history, et cetera, like all these different disciplines um, who for one reason or another are interested in this long tradition and, and heritage of classical education and is providing an academic space for people to write and, and think and dialogue together. That's really exciting. Well, beautifully said. Uh, so we'll sign off here. Uh, first, huge thank you to Dr. David Diener. Uh, thanks, David, for spending time with us and uh, our listeners this morning. And I will let the rest of you get on with pursuing the true, good, beautiful, holy, healthy, and beneficial wherever you are. You've been listening to Dr. Brian A. Williams, and this is the Principia Journal Podcast. <laughs>